In recent years, there has been an increasing incidence of what's called orthorexia nervosa, a psychological disorder characterized by an obsession with healthy eating. As the Guardian's Olga Oxman reported, the name of the condition itself reflects a yearning for righteousness and worthiness. Ortho means right or correct, and rexia means desire. In other words, a desire to be correct. According to a 2009 article in the same paper, those who suffer from this condition are solely concerned with the quality of the food they put in their bodies, refining and restricting their diets according to their personal understanding of which foods are truly pure. People with this condition often have rigid rules around eating. The article continues, The obsession about which food foods are good and which are bad means orthorexics can end up malnourished. Their dietary restrictions commonly cause sufferers to feel proud of their virtuous behavior, even if it means that eating becomes so stressful their personal relationships can come under pressure and they become socially isolated. The condition has been recognized relatively recently by the mental health community and is described as a fixation on righteous eating. It is on the rise, but it is also a very difficult cult to diagnose because our culture as a whole is obsessed with categorizing food into good and bad categories. As a nutritional therapist said, in our current food-obsessed culture, healthy eating can take on a quality similar to religious fervor in which certain foods are sinful and eating in a certain rigid way is godly and rewarded. A religious fervor, forget Downton Abbey, this isn't an etiquette fad. This is a disorder, and while the disorder can now be named, it isn't a new one. Julia Child said 50 years ago, I think one of the terrible things today is that people have this deathly fear of food, fear of eggs, say, or fear of butter. She also said the only real stumbling block is fear of failure. In cooking, you've got to have a what-the-hell attitude. Easier said than done, Julia, especially when our minds are whispering all of the rules we'd love to forget. Whether it's entertaining or recipes or agricultural activism, a set of written or unwritten rules can stain the natural grace that otherwise accompanies a table full of friends. These rules divide people by class and status. They can get in the way of real community. They can draw a sharp line right down the middle of the dining room table between saint and sinner. An excerpt from Carrie Willard's Orthorexia, The New Etiquette, which appears in the food and drink issue of The Mockingbird. Eating is a continual reminder of our creatureliness. Whenever we hunger or thirst, whether we are satiated or not, we are reminded that our lives are not our own. We are sustained instead by a miraculous process whereby the matter we ingest is transformed into a part of us. Granted, this miracle is often lost when we are engrossed in low to mid-budget shows where chefs 
or over mouth-watering cupcakes we will never taste. Or when Botox Beauty solicit devotion to the latest fad, a cardboard-flavored preservative-rich protein bar, instead of that same cupcake based solely on what we are told is superior nutritional value. It's a complicated role these days, but food plays a no less central role in our lives. And that's why this issue of The Mockingbird is dedicated to food and drink. And this podcast is the preview and celebration of that issue. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host. And in this special episode of The Mockingcast, we'll hear from Ethan Richardson, editor of The Mockingbird magazine, David Peterson, one of the contributors to the issue, Helen Zoe Vait, who is the author of Modern Food, Moral Food, and who we had the privilege of interviewing for this issue of the magazine. And we'll hear from the best bartender in North America, if not the world, my friend, Joe Falk. Let's dig in. Bon appetit. But to give but one more instance, consider this further variation on Fanny Farmer's Protein Wonder Denver Chocolate Pudding. Butter a 9 by 9 baking dish. In the bottom, put a layer of diced meat, fish, or vegetable, accented judiciously with chopped onion, celery, green pepper, cheese, or what have you. Over that, spread a layer of prepared biscuit mix, 2 cups mix, 2 thirds cup milk. Over that, Pour a leftover sauce that you've stretched with heavy cream to one and a half cups and then seasoned inventively. Bake 40 minutes at 350 degrees. The sauce will go underneath as the biscuits come up, this time giving you bread, meat, and gravy, all in one dish fit for six kings or four teenage princes. And of course, for the chef who in addition enjoys the liberation of leftover cookery, like God who made the world out of nothing, the cook who creates from cold scratch need produce only something, anything, and he is beyond the reach of failure. Indeed he may, unless he disciplines himself, imitate the divine largesse more closely than he intended. Leftover leftovers are alarmingly possible, like the knife that has been in the family for a hundred years and that has had three new blades and five new handles in the same century. There are dishes that can lose their identity a dozen times and never once imperil their existence. From Robert Capon, an excerpt from Capon on Cooking, appearing in the food and drink issue of The Mockingbird. Richardson, editor-in-chief of The Mockingbird, which I always want to say Mockingbird magazine, but really it's just it's the, the Mockingbird. It's the Mockingbird, yeah. It's, it's the real deal. It's actually, it has the, definite, the virtue of the definite article. It's not a Mockingbird. No. Nope. It's the Mockingbird. Absolutely. So this is the food and drink issue. What have you consumed today? food and beverage wise just to get our listeners a sense of what 
your whole vibe is day to day. What was breakfast like for you? It's 10.40 a.m. So, yeah, it's 10.40 this morning. Um, let's see. Coffee's first. And I, I totally, I buy into the sort of hipster. Uh, I've got the like, um, the pour over going on. I've got the, burnt. I am in complete agreement. I think like, yeah. and I'm not, I, I'm like, it's not a placebo effect. Yeah. You're just, it's the purest thing. I mean, you're not getting the metal and the thing. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I just got like a, um, sort of like a beehive shape, like one of those, um, like pour over, coffee kettles you know that has like the gooseneck um so and then i got a burr grinder for christmas so i mean that to me that matters the most and then uh and then breakfast we were kind of low on everything so i had some yogurt and i'm really hungry right now um i have a hard-boiled egg in the fridge um but I, i know i know i could really use like a uh, like a McMuffin. I love McDonald's. I know. I do too. Don't tell my wife, but I went there this weekend. Um, well, I mean, does she listen to the podcast? Cause you just told her. I know. I am sorry, Hannah. Well, there you go. Let me ask you this. When you get the mag, the print magazine in the mail, mm-hmm. right? It comes, it, yeah. it comes, to the office, you open it. Is the first thing you do just look for typos? Yeah, actually, I, um, Dave's been joking this whole time that I'm like not excited about this issue. And the thing is, is by the time that the like mountain of boxes come into the office, I've looked at the thing so many times. I can't bear to see like, like the, you know, the three typos that are still there, you know? Um, are there three? Uh, there are probably more than three, um, but there are definitely three. Listeners, could you tweet out to Mockingbird when you find typos? It'd be a good <laughs> yeah. game. We have free subscription <laughs> to anyone who finds a typo. Oh, great. Yeah. Please don't tell me. All right. Let me ask you a couple questions just so listeners can get more of a feel beyond your prose mm-hmm. and your editorial elan for who you are. Mm. I love that word. I do too. iPhone, Android. iPhone. McDonald's, Burger King. McDonald's. Law, gospel. Um, uh, law. Oh boy! So you were saying you were so you were gonna go gospel, but then you were thinking, oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna sound like I'm showing off. I want to show that I'm addicted to the law like everybody else. All right? Yeah. yeah. We haven't stripped away all the pretense, but let's see. Tell us what you're most excited about in this issue of the magazine. What can readers, where would you, if you were a reader, well, you are a reader, but if you were a reader that was uninitiated with this issue, had not seen it 10 zillion times, what was, what would be the first article you would dig into? Oh man, that's tough. Um, you know, I, I made it, I would probably, I would go through the entire magazine and go straight to the sermon, um, Dave's sermon on, on food. Um, mainly because it just, it kind of, it kind of positions the entire magazine and the issues that we're talking about. Um, but, um, honestly, the, 
the reason I would say that is because Dave kind of gets the fact that like food and what we think um, think about when we're thinking about food is how absolutely um, culturally stratifying it is, how um, where you say you uh, had breakfast or what you had for breakfast or um, how you make your coffee in the morning says so much about who you are and is oftentimes a divisive way of describing yourself as opposed to um, many other parts of life, you know, it's one of the one of the quickest ways we can we can talk about who we are and and more importantly how how righteous we are. Um, but it's also something that is supposed to be so deeply enjoyable and pleasurable, you know, like food tastes so good when it's done right, and um, and my favorite part of the day is is waking up and having that first cup of coffee. It's like it is so it's such a pleasure, you know, but but it's such a i mean food and drink provides this perfect picture this everyday life picture of um how pleasure gets trumped by morality or by the rules that we kind of put into play so um yeah. first trump reference of the of the conversation yeah absolutely can't avoid that guy it's it's huge food is wonderful you go to mar-a-lago by the way if you google their thanksgiving menu at Mar-a-Lago. I read it. I forget where it's posted. It was sounded stupendous. I mean, just amazing. It sounded like they had a great Thanksgiving dinner at White House mm. South. <laughs> when I first got the magazine, it's, I had the same experience every time it's mailed to me. That, and, and I've seen the digital copy. So it's, it's sort of, it, it's, it, you know, the thing is not altogether new for me and yet mm. when you get the thing in your hands the way it looks the way it feels the way it smells and maybe this is sort of what you're saying about food too like you're it, it it feels retro to do a print magazine in the age of digital and yet i it never gets old to me the aesthetic experience of opening the package and thumbing through it mm. yeah thanks scott i mean um yeah, with this issue, we kind of wanted to make it feel a little bit more like a meal. So we have um, we have recipes kind of scattered throughout. And I mean, one of the reasons to do a magazine is to make it more, you know, physical and, and palpable and to sort of, you know, when everything is virtual, it's kind of nice to have something that uh, you can feel and you can put on your table. But um but with food and drink in particular, there's, there's a lot of ways you can kind of have fun with it with an issue like this. Who is your dream reader? Like if you're imagining somebody that like is reading this issue, who is it? <laughs> is it Matthew McConaughey? Is it Ellen? Who is it? Um, you know, gosh, it would be nice to have McConaughey to read. I think, I think it's someone who, I think I'm kind of, we're, we're writing to ourselves most of the time, you know, and, and it's certainly true for me, someone who, um, you know, grew up on casseroles and frosted flakes and went to Applebee's and now you are, you're describing the love of my life. Lindy Jones. Yeah. Casser she, totally. Oh, totally. Casserole. Everything was a casserole. Oh man. And when we were in Manhattan one day, I'm like, no, actually it was, we were walking through downtown Philadelphia and, 
there's a cheesecake factory opened up like right in the right near off Rittenhouse Square. I was like, why would somebody do that? She's like, babe, people from the Midwest don't trust exotic or unique food. So that's mm-hmm. why there's an Applebee's in Times Square. You go to the food, you know. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. So there that's you so go. True. The um the guy who uh, Mark Minivar is like the photographer who um, did the cover for this issue, and it's if you haven't seen it, it's it's the inside of a fridge, and it's a pretty it's a pretty clean fridge, if you ask me. My fridge does not look like his, um, but he has this other series where he's um, photographed like the last meals of all these guys who are on death row, and. It's exactly what you're saying. It's like all of these last meals, there's no, there are no smoothies, you know, there's no, there's no like kale and ginger salad. It's like, it's like his grandmother's casserole or like fried chicken or, um, you know, just these, these meals that have always represented comfort and memory. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's kind of who, this is for it's for like people who um have a lot of rules when they eat and who may not consider themselves foodies you know but but certainly what we're trying to say here is that uh when it comes down to it uh there are so many unspoken things that we're thinking about when we come to the table i interrupted you by the way who was your your dream reader was lindy jones (laughs) yeah yeah your wife lindy and um and and maybe Dave Zoll, because that guy's got some serious issues. Well, of course. And Matthew McConaughey, of course. Maybe, maybe McConaughey. Do you know who Joe Buck is? Yeah. He yeah. was just he was just interviewed on Stern, you know, the sportscaster, and he one of his friends said, You gotta lose some weight and you gotta get hair plugs, like some some this hair plug surgery. So he went and had the surgery and the the anesthetic like the anesthesiologist there's a weird side effect it almost ruined his vocal cords like he was for weeks and weeks and weeks he couldn't really talk was all scratchy wait joe Joe buck or howard yeah yeah joe buck yeah Mm -hmm. joe buck was like he was he uh he almost ruined his voice to make his appearance better Mm -hmm. for tv stuff and Mm -hmm. stern was like oh my god i mean this is a nightmare he's like yeah i go to matthew mcconaughey we're at this party night and he's like what's up with your voice man and he says, well, you know, I had this, I haven't told anybody this, but I had this surgery. And McConaughey says, so what you're saying is you upgraded your video, but you screwed up your audio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So I'm hoping McConaughey reads this. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, that was just a, that was a long way of saying uh, McConaughey. Inbird.com. Uh, yeah, I mean... That story also shows that, I mean, as much as we want to, um, you know, enjoy our lives so often, um, like in in this realm of of food and drink, our lives get sort of blockaded by um, just these like constantly shifting uh, targets, you know, Carrie Willard has this essay where she's talking about um, how in the 60s eating was was kind of subjugated to um, entertaining and how at, at the dinner table uh, in the 1960s, it was all about sort of the doilies and, um, 
you know, where to put the silverware and how to, how to entertain and what, to, you know, where to put what note cards and how to write a thank you note. And now all that stuff's been sort of thrown out the window and minimalized. And what we really care about is the food. The food is like, is the focal point and where it's sourced and, um, you know, what its carbon footprint is and all of this stuff. And, um, and so, yeah, the, the targets are shifting, but, um, but the law is always there. Life, the beauty of life, right, is in the leftovers, which we yeah. are about leftovers. Yeah, yeah, totally. In, in from the great Robert Capon. And you say in your one last editor's note in the introduction that you, that besides, which is due to the almighty host, which I'm sure is Christchurch. Um, yeah, well, Charlotte's film, yes, the Almighty host, yes, yeah, um, not Jesus Paul Walker, but no. Uh, besides that, which is due to the Almighty host, uh, a lot of gratitude goes to this ish, this itch this issue's spiritual sous chef, the Reverend Robert Farrar Capon. His words are everywhere in these pages, both directly and indirectly, even where he is not being directly quoted, he is making his presence known. Capon, mm-hmm. the food writer and priest, is not keen on table manners. God is to be liberally consumed and enjoyed. God insists that you, the guest, have no responsibility but to taste and to laugh at your own party fouls. This one's for him. Uh, could you... When what when did you discover Capon? What was your first encounter and experience with Robert Capon? Mm. Um, I guess it had to be in uh, in church. Uh, one of the ministers, who's no longer at at our church here in Charlottesville, uh, was leading a Bible study about the parables of Jesus and and used heavily um, Kingdom Grace and Judgment, which we've quoted extensively on the site and um capon just has this unbelievable grasp of um play in the way that he talks theology and um he's been a hero of mine for a really long time not just because of that play but also because he's someone who just who at least um, by the virtue of his writing, you see someone who loved life, you know, who um, whose love for God didn't mean sort of a stringency about the way that he lived life. Instead, there was just this open, open-armed uh, embrace of of what what was offered to him, and uh, and so that meant that he he cooked a lot. You know, he he wrote for the New York Times as a food critic and um, and as a chef. And so I don't know anyone who's really who's really dabbled in both of those fields. And uh, and so I think something about this issue that feels m- more accessible is is due to him because. Um, with Capon, there's always a little bit of a smirk, even if you're trying to get serious about, about food or, or theology. Yeah. A man that was no stranger to pain, which I think probably helped 
cultivate yeah. his yeah. passion for pleasure. I mean, it, yeah. it, an appreciation of the grace that real pleasure is. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. What are you having for lunch today? Uh, leftovers. <laughs> yeah, having leftovers. Leftovers is kind of like our, our go-to. Although Capen, and you'll see this in the magazine, he says that leftovers are your chance to sort of experience God's grace, to sort of play with... Um, what you have in front of you and you can't fail you you can throw some stuff in to change it up um and no matter what uh you're 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 bound for success we just kind of throw it in the microwave though we don't really like um we don't really change the substance that we're working with well you can throw it in the microwave or you can even place it maybe some of life is whether you think things are thrown or placed or maybe part of the leftovers is stuff that's thrown get placed or something like that. Ethan, thank you again for all your work. I mean, this is, again, it's, uh, I feel like every couple of months uh, there's a gift that comes to my mailbox. <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, I don't have that kind of relationship with many print periodicals or magazines, but it's, it's a great gift and thank you for all your work on it. Thanks, Scotty. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So what'd you have for breakfast today? I had a smoothie and cereal. A smoothie and cereal. Now, this is different than if you would have been eating at the beginning of the 20th century. You would not have had a smoothie and cereal. Definitely not. Definitely not. I might have had cereal. It's possible I might have had box cereal because that was just becoming popular, but almost definitely not a smoothie. Uh, was cereal, was it something to do with like extra grain? Like why did we start eating grain cereal? Well, you know, Kellogg, uh, John Harvey Kellogg and Will Kellogg were brothers. And uh, John Harvey Kellogg was a sort of, uh, he had come from a Seventh-day Adventist background and was a moral vegetarian. And uh, the story as, as is... Opposed to the, as opposed to the immoral vegetarian. Exactly. All, the, all those I'm evil... picturing like a group of pirates in the Caribbean. They're all vegetarian. <laughs> ah, we're immoral vegetarians. <laughs> exactly. He was, let's say, a self-righteous vegetarian. <laughs> um, he was more, but he was more interested in uh, effects on the body than on, you know, he wasn't particularly invested in animal rights. He was uh, very interested in human health. And the story is that his wife, Ella Kellogg, John Harvey Kellogg's wife, left grain to soak overnight accidentally. And then they realized, oh, in this form, we can roll it out and then dry it. I don't know how much of that is mythology uh, and how much is historical fact, but uh it became his brother, Will Kellogg, uh, took off with it with the Kellogg Company and uh, box cereal, in part because of its convenience, uh, became really popular starting in the early 20th century. You, I just, I feel like I just want to sit and ask you like curious food questions <laughs> I've had for my whole life. But uh, now, okay, when you're doing, you decide you want to be a historian, right? Yes. When, when do you think I'm working on food? Like, how does that happen? So for me, um, I was a graduate student like 14 years ago starting out. And food has- Where was this? Where'd you study? It was at Yale. 
Yale University. Okay. And food history was not a huge thing at that point. Some people were doing it. But my uh, prejudice coming into it was that that sounded like a sort of light, you know, frivolous topic. And I wanted to be a serious historian. And I, I actually got into it through the back door, starting out on a dissertation that was about food aid during World War I, which I thought of as a sort of serious topic. I was going to be looking mainly at foreign policy issues, uh, to some degree, technology issues. But I discovered uh, a source base, which was about 380,000 letters that ordinary Americans had written to the government during World War I about food, because the government was trying to get Americans to eat differently so they could send food to Europe. And these letters were about so much more than just food aid. They were about food culture and ideas about food and what they had in their kitchen cabinets and their attempts to gain weight or lose weight and what they were feeding their children. And it was just so fabulous and rich that I fell in love with the idea of studying food culture. And I ended up writing a book that was about food aid during World War One, but was also much bigger as well. And I've never really looked back since then. I've been doing food history ever since. And this is modern food, moral food, which was that, that was like your dissertation become book sort of form. Exactly. Now, yep. You talk about in the, in the book, like sitting in the archives and reading these letters. Mm -hmm. How long does it take you to read a couple hundred thousand letters. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm just, I was sitting there imagining, and I'm thinking penmanship. Yes. And, I, 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 that's, that's an arduous task. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, it was, it was a labor of love for sure, but I would come back from the archives every day really exhausted. Um, it, it, in part, you know, in part, it was a good exhaustion, um, but it, it took months, you know, months sitting in the archives. These, are, these were in the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. Um, and... It, it took months of time. And, I, you know, I didn't read every word of every one. Um, sometimes they would be very repetitive. They would be, you know, there were thousands and thousands of letters about temperance, for example. In other words, trying to get people not to drink alcohol. This was right before prohibition came into effect. And a lot of Americans said, well, you're trying to get us not to eat bread so you can send flour to our allies. And yet people are allowed to drink beer. That seems like a contradiction. And so, you know, after a while, you could say, oh, this is, this is one of those letters. And, you know, so I wouldn't necessarily read every word, but it took a long time, <laughs> but it was fun. Now, you talk in the book how basically the progressive era where there was this kind of almost Promethean confidence in r rationality, self-discipline, you know, that through this, develop, through progressive values that actually we wind up viewing food and diet in this like ascetic moral fashion it, it, which it, it seems like a huge cultural shift and is that why people are writing these letters it's so, it's it was so hard for me as i'm reading your book imagining people sitting writing these letters you know to the food uh agency of the government like i would it would never occur to me to do that yeah i mean part of it part of what was touching about the letters was that a lot of people assumed they would get a personal response. They were writing very personal letters. Um, and, you know, sometimes, for example, they wrote letters to Herbert Hoover, who later became president, but in the 1910s was head of the U.S. Food Administration. Sometimes they would write Hoover letters asking for a loan. You know, say, by the way, um, my, my farm is, you know, in trouble. Could you send me $50? You know, very, but to me, what was touching is that they, they were assuming this very personal relationship with the government. Um, 
But yes, a lot of them, you know, what I saw over and over again and what eventually became really the center of my book was this idea that they were acquiring all this knowledge about food um, in all of these realms, especially nutrition. Nutrition science was brand new. Um, and ideas like vitamins and calories for the very first time were becoming part of common language. People, ordinary people were talking about what had seemed like very scientific terms. Um, and they were also involved in this food aid program during World War I, where they were sending large amounts of food overseas where it was needed. This seemed like this really modern project. Like, wow, okay, there's hunger in this area. There's abundance in this other. And we have the capacity to, to move food where it's needed all over the globe. This was very exciting. And this seemed very rational to people. Like this, this is what modernity looks like. This is humanistic um, and, and also humanitarian modernity that we can, we can send food where it's needed. And also we as individuals are, are both moral enough, but also self-controlled enough to say, okay, well, if, if bread is needed in France or in Belgium, we'll eat less of it here. We'll eat, you know, we'll eat maybe cornmeal instead, or we'll, we'll eat rye bread and we'll send the wheat bread to France. You know, this was a combination of a lot of different moral ideas. Yeah, you use this great phrase in your book. You say that th this this development helped Americans see themselves as global citizens and benefactors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, that's right. So, I mean, another really interesting dimension is that this was a time when America, which, you know, we, we tend to think of today as having, you know, always been this superpower, but it really hadn't been up through the 1910s. World War I, in a lot of ways, was a hinge when it came to American power. And World, World War I, in some ways, really accelerated that so that by the end of the war, America, which had, had been involved in this food aid program, um, was actually a creditor to a lot of European nations because it wasn't actually food aid. It, it, they were selling food. They were selling food to their allies. And we came out being the creditors to all these, all these empires. And, and that really started to solidify America's place as a superpower starting in the 1920s. Before you started academic research on food, on history of food in, in modern America, were you a pretty self-conscious eater? I mean, were you like, were, were you like a foodie? Were you a pretty healthy person? Were you an organic person? Or, 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 I mean, ha how has your work changed your relationship to what you eat? I, th I think that's a great question. I think my own trajectory with food has really paralleled a lot of Americans in the last 15 years where I've become increasingly aware of um, issues like local food or organic food or non-industrial food. And I think maybe because of my work and because of personal interest, I'm slightly more invested in some of those. Um, and But more than anything, I just, I love to cook. Like I, I really enjoy cooking. Um, it, I, it's hard for me to disentangle how much of that is an academic interest and how much is just a personal hobby because I spend a lot of my time reading about recipes professionally, you know, and, and they're historical recipes. They're often, people ask me all the time, well, so do, do you cook what you're, what you're reading about? And usually I don't because usually historical recipes, while really interesting to me, are not necessarily uh, appealing. I sometimes do for fun. Um, but I, I do, I, I am interested in food, but I think a lot of Americans are, and I think it's a growing interest for a lot of people. And in many ways, I'm, I'm just kind of caught up in that that bigger historical trend myself. 
Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, you, you talk about in the book how basically you couldn't today write headlines like the 1915 Washington Post article, number of fat women is appalling. <laughs> <laughs> but you could write, like in, two th- in 2008, the Washington Post features, how obesity harms a child's body. And so you even today, it just was released that for the first time in years, American life expectancy has gone down. Mm. And I think I was watching MSNBC, or they were saying that so much of this is is diet, obesity, diabetes, heart stuff. Uh, you know, it, so it, it is. It, 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 it part of what you, you argue in your book is we just have this moral approach to food. Like it's not it's not value neutral anymore. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's you know my my argument is that that's sort of dates in some important ways from this era. So for about a hundred years, Americans have had this weirdly moral approach to food. And I think a lot of people might say, but wait, what are you talking about? Americans are hedonists. You know, they don't approach food morally. They approach food thoughtlessly and they eat way too much. And, you know, people behave, you know, gluttonously when it comes to food. And I think, you know, in some ways, they're almost parts, they're almost two sides of the same coin um, because we tend to see pleasure around food as being something that's not moral. You know, we tend to think, you know, if you're really a moral person, then you'll put intellectual ideas like animal rights or hunger in other places, and you'll put those ahead of your own desires around food. Physical desires are a, a low sort of um, almost animalistic thing. Um, whereas in a lot of other cultures, pleasure around food is like completely central. Like that's just, that's of course, like your, your care about the deliciousness of your food for, first and foremost. And that in no way is in conflict with, you know, morality. Whereas in America, we tend to separate them, you know, and we have this idea that, you know, if you're, you know, self-controlled around food, you're going to not eat too much. You're going to have these other kind of almost disciplinary things going on in your life, like a really regular exercise routine. And that's, that's all about self-control and that's good. We tend to moralize that. Um, and I personally, I think, um, I think we shouldn't separate those. I think pleasure, you know, pleasure is a really important part of being human, you know, especially when it comes to food, that's a fundamental part of who we are as humans. And to try to say that taking pleasure in food is bad, it just, it, it isn't sustainable for most people. It's, it's just, you know, I, I don't think it's a really good way to live for most people. There's a quote I wanted to read you. As I, I, as I was reading your book, it made me th- think of this quote. This is a book called um, The Supper of the Lamb by Robert Capon. He was an Episcopal priest who was a New York Times food critic and wrote this cookbook where he does this like several course meal with a lamb. And he has all these philosophical and religious like reflections. And he says in uh, a chapter called The Generous Ox, Man invented cooking before he thought of nutrition. To be sure, food keeps us alive, but that is only its smallest and most temporary work. Its eternal purpose is to furnish our sensibilities against the day when we shall sit down at the heavenly banquet and see how gracious the Lord is. Nourishment is necessary only for a while. What we shall need forever is taste. Oh, I love that. That's great. Yeah, he's he's. I mean, he's a fascinating. He has like three pages on an onion, on cutting an onion, and and how, what you learn about metaphysics from an onion. It's amazing. But but is that? I mean, is he onto something there that like we've we've kind of redu- like, like we've reduced 
food to this utilitarian thing. Uh, and even I wonder even if you're like a foodie and you're thinking about all the organic this and that and farm to table that do you lose the ability to enjoy it for taste because you, you're enjoying it for its moral value? I mean, I, I would say I don't think those two things are in conflict. I mean, I think you can and I think we all should. You know, I don't want to go too far in the other direction. I think food is also a really important part of, you know, our effect on the environment or how, you know, it's a major part of, you know, how we spend our money. It's a major draw on resources. It's a major draw on, you know, labor. And so the choices we make around food, I think are really important, but I think we can also eat deliciously and, and still really enjoy our food and, and lead full, rich lives, you know, or with a social world around food while still eating morally. And that, you know, we don't necessarily have to moralize every bite we take. You know, I, I really believe in moderation in all things. Do you think that on some level, like, it's, you have to, uh, St. Augustine's famous prayer is, God, command with your will and give me the grace to will what you command. Like, on some level, is the people I know that seem healthy and happy are people that uh, enjoy their lifestyle around food. It's not a sort of constraint. Like I've got to count my calories. Cause you know, when you get, we do the calorie counting rigorous diet, you usually binge once you get off it. <laughs> so it's these sort of like up down cycles that somehow I guess do, uh, do our affections need to be shaped differently? Yes. I profoundly agree with what you said. I mean, I'm, and I'm, <laughs> I'm very against calorie counting in general. I just, again, like it gets back to the idea of sustainable eating. And when I say that phrase, sustainable, people are probably thinking of the environment. But what I mean is that what is sustainable for you as a person, you know, know, and I totally agree, diets by their very nature are temporary. And to find, you know, a balance of, uh, you know, a way of eating that you have the time to prepare, that you enjoy eating, um, that brings you pleasure. And that's also, you know, is, is morally good to some extent that isn't, you know, horribly harmful for workers or animals or the environment or, you know, whatever issues that you're invested in morally, um, you know, it has to be something you can do forever. You know, again, in moderation, not necessarily being, you know, never having exceptions from basic guidelines. But I do think, you know, the idea of a short-term diet that you hate, but you're doing for a little while so that you can, whatever it is, lose weight or lower your cholesterol or whatever people might do that for, um, you know, a diet in that sense is, is never going to change your life. You know, you talk about how in the early, in your book, in the early 20th century, a, like a sort of moderate amount of body fat was almost viewed with esteem. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, you think of this person the boss, right, is 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 kind of plump because he's living well, or she, and then the employees are probably a little thinner because they're not living well. Isn't it? It's almost like the opposite now, right? Like the person at the head of the corporation because they have discretionary income and time, they're at their soul cycle class and their boot camp, and the people that are that are making company go are having to make quick food choices, and so it's all it's it's strange. It seems like it's reverse. Absolutely, it's this it's this really unique, um, almost paradoxical situation where we're now in, where you know lower socioeconomic status is more highly correlated um, with obesity, and and that includes people who are chronically hungry, which I think is maybe a surprise to people. It is so counterintuitive, but a lot of people who suffer from 
chronic food insecurity, who are often hungry, who don't know where their next meal is coming from, those same people are often obese. And you know, in part, it's, it's not because they're necessarily eating so much, although you know, sometimes that can happen, but um, it's that the foods they're eating are often highly processed, really calorie dense. So to, to just to feel full, they have to eat a lot. Um, and the, you know, hunger is, is a really big issue in America today. It's, it's something like um, you know, 10% of all Americans experience hunger on a pretty regular basis. Um, you know, hunger in the sense of not having food, even if they wanted it. And, and it's even higher for children. It's something like one in five American children. Um, and so that's, you know, we're in this really curious situation where we're the richest country in the world. We have, you know, really an abundant amount of food in an absolute sense. If you counted calories available in America right now, it's more than enough to feed everybody. And yet, um, you know, we, we have people going hungry and those same people, you know, as I said, are often obese. And, you know, it's, it's this kind of a strange situation where in this, um, environment of, abundance. And so it's become prestigious to seem, uh, you know, like you can control yourself in this environment of abundance. So you're, you're not, you don't have excess body weight. That's totally strange historically. Um, in most times and places, you know, people didn't have to think like that because if you, if you had enough to eat, you were grateful for that. And, uh, and, and people who were poorer often wore their poverty in their bodies by being thin or, or also by being short, um, from not having had enough food as children, they were often, um, small, you know, actually they were actually short. They use an interesting word there, gratitude. And I wonder how many people do you think actually feel grateful when they eat today? Yeah. I, (laughs) I wonder that too. Um, you know, I think, I, I think, all of us could feel more grateful than we do for for this really unprecedented situation where we're in, where for most people we have enough to eat. You know, I just talked about food insecurity, but most Americans do have enough. Um, and, and in fact, we have in many cases wildly more than enough. And we waste a lot of food. We spend a very small percentage of our incomes on food in general. You know, even, you know, someone like me who, you know, I know these things, I, I study it, um, it's still hard to to be, I think, adequately grateful, um, you know, every day, and maybe maybe the way we all should. Yeah, and you know, you talk about reverse ironic reversals. You know, body fat is one of them. another one you talk about is that in in the early twentieth century, with the progressives, sort of the industrial food movement was around science and health and eating vitamins, and now we associate with the opposite. We associate with McDonald's or cheap processed food that, you know, is really probably not the best thing for you. That, that now the in, industrial stuff is, is, has a profit margin, mass production kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was an interesting thing too, is how celebrated industrial food was 100 years, ago, 100 years ago because it seemed to solve all these problems. And of course it was solving problems, like especially with food preservation, having a way to like centrally you know, preserve huge amounts of food in cans or in boxes. Um, that was amazing for people. Um, and, 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 you know, and I'm not, it really is still amazing. It's, it's great that I, I, who live in Michigan and I'm staring outside at a snowy day right now, I'm not worried about where I'm going to find food this winter. Like it's, I'm going to find it at the grocery store. You know, that's, it's no problem for us. Um, but yeah, I mean, with, 
the growing industrialization of food, especially the increasing level of processing, you know, putting, taking food apart on the molecular level and putting it back together and, um, you know, adding a lot of things that aren't actually food products, adding, you know, different sorts of chemicals, sometimes petroleum products to our food um, to increase taste, to increase shelf life. Some of these things have, you know, had positive effects in terms of, you know, securing abundance. But, you know, we've gone way overboard and a lot of the foods we eat, the highly processed foods are, are frankly not healthful right now. And, and for Americans who are getting a large amount of their calories from those foods, um, you know, that's, that's absolutely not great. That's, that's one reason for the poor health comes that you were just pointing to in terms of um, declining American life expectancy. Do you eat fast food? Um, <laughs> you know, really rarely. Like, you know, I, I don't have like, I wouldn't say I never eat it, but it's, it's extremely rare. When you do it, what do you eat? What uh, do you like? Maybe Subway or Jimmy oh, John's. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I enjoy it. Like I, McDonald's French fries are delicious. Like there's, there's some foods that are really delicious. I bet I rarely, I, I rarely eat it, but occasionally on a road trip or something, you know, it, I don't have an absolute uh, prohibition against it. I love McDonald's. Yeah. I, I mean, I try not to eat it like that much, but I do love it. Yeah. I, and, you know, and when the, when the convenience requires it. I delight in mm-hmm, absolutely that convenience need. Uh, <laughs> it's like I feel like I've just cleansed my soul. Like yeah. confessing my <laughs> by, by admitting that. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. C.S. Lewis writes about. I think it's in Mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. He talks. He's talking about pornography and sexuality in England, and he says we'd think it really odd if a bunch of people sat in a cabaret space and a curtain came up and there was a luxurious turkey dinner or whatever it laid out and people didn't eat it. They just drooled over it. And he was to, and it's funny, he's thinking of how absurd that would be, right? right? In the mid 20th century. Now we have entire cable networks devoted to this. That's hilarious. That's I hadn't I I haven't read that for many years and I I would I'll have to reread that. That's an amazing comparison. That's so true. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's we have entire shows where we just look at food. Absolutely. Or there's this great uh 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 web video thing called Instagram husbands and it's and the, this couple sitting there eating and they their food comes and he's about to dig into it and the girl or the wife is stop it what are you doing take the picture first <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it is interesting like how we how we photograph our food yeah I mean it's... what's behind that do you think as a historian well, I mean, we photograph everything. We photograph a lot of things these days. I mean, ma- I guess mainly ourselves <laughs> and also ourselves, our children and our food are maybe some of the top three things that we're photographing these days. I mean, it's, you know, it's conspicuous consumption for sure. It's, you know, sort of showing off to people. Um, I think maybe it's also in maybe the best possible sense a way of recording, um, you know, trying to aid our memories I think it is sometimes showing off a little bit, you know, posting to Facebook or to Instagram, you know, delicious meals that you can afford or that you can afford the time to make. Um, but it's also sharing. I think it's also people, it's, a, it's a, a hobby. I think for a lot of people, it's a hobby and an interest in food is something they think they share with their friends. And, and that's, you know, they get some satisfaction from that. What, what do you make of like, services like Blue Apron? Um, you know, it's, I actually tried Blue Apron because I had a free, you know, a friend gave me a free box or something, you know, I got, I got it for free through the mail. And I I think I tried HelloFresh as well in the same way. Um, 
it didn't do much for me because I I don't have time. I don't have trouble planning meals. I like planning meals. I don't have that much trouble um, getting to the store because my my husband grocery shops, um, and he you know it's it's just part of our routine. What we do have trouble with is just finding the time to cook. And so for us, it it like it didn't solve the problem that we have. Um, I think it's cool. I think those can be cool in the sense that they empower people to cook. I think one thing they do is that they just show people that cooking isn't necessarily that hard. The services they provide are just are basically meal planning and grocery shopping for you. You're doing all the other work in your kitchen, you know, for the most part. And I think for people who have been, you know, had a sort of mental block where they feel they can't cook, those can be really great to to be able to sort of have just a boost to to do that sort of cooking. I I do have a problem, you know, one of the main reasons I just never can would consider it besides the cost. I think they're pretty expensive. Um is just the, you know, I, I just felt like I don't need my food delivered in this huge box by a truck to my door with all this ice in it. That's, it just seemed <laughs> environmentally, you know, I couldn't justify doing that on a regular basis. Um, but I have friends who do it and they, I think it really, it helps them out. Like they, they feel like it really um, is a huge time saver for them. And so I, you know, I, I think those services can be good to the degree that they get people cooking and I'm, I'm all for people doing more cooking. As as a professor who teaches undergrads, mm-hmm. right? You, do you what are you, are you like watching like Jane Goodall a little bit, like looking at them? Oh, what are their food practices? What, I mean, what what do you like? What do you see coming based on observing your students and interacting with them? Like, how where do you think is does that give you insights into where eating and food our relationship to it is going? I I think so. I learn so much from my students all the time. Um, and in fact, I just finished teaching a class yesterday where um, one of their first assignments for the class was to write what we call a food autobiography, where it's basically a paper about themselves starting from childhood um, and talking with them trying to talk about the food culture in which they grew up, why they ate the things they ate, food memories. And then their final assignment for the class is to rewrite it and to, to take what, we, what they learned during the semester where we really talk about modern food and food culture and um, all of these things and, and, and rethink their relationship to food and reevaluate it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot from my students in the beginning is this, this feeling of disconnection from cooking. You know, few of them cook. They're college students, so, you know, they, a lot of them are dining halls, so they, they wouldn't cook, but a lot of them don't see cooking as something they'd really ever want to do. And, this is not a class about cooking. It's a, it's a social science class where they're studying um, anthropology and sociology and history and economics. And, um, but there's this sort of stealth mission of the class, which is to get them to see that cooking you know, is not necessarily that hard, but also that cooking can solve a lot of problems for them. You know, A lot of the problems we talk about with highly processed food and health and um, you know, the labor involved in um, a lot of food production they can, they can solve a lot of those problems by, by making good food choices at the grocery store and, and by doing some cooking for themselves. And um, they get extra credit for cooking and, you know, small, a small amount of extra credit and they're, you know, limited opportunities to do this. But a lot of them by the end of the semester have cooked a few things for the first time and are really excited about it. And um, to me, you know, I, I think a lot of Americans are not you know, are not that interested in cooking and don't think that much about what they're eating. And so getting to work with students in this way is, is really, really fun for me. I really love doing that. Yeah. Do you think I, 
post-apocalyptic stuff like The Walking Dead and things like this help people think about food? I mean, because it's such a predominant genre now. In, yes. in, 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 at least in television, you know, in serial dramas. And, and it's so, it, you instantly with the zombie apocalypse, right? You mm-hmm. go pre-modern. You don't really know mm-hmm. what's going on more than a mile away. And getting food becomes really hard, ma- keeping it, maintaining it. I mean, is that a window into like a different way to think about food gathering preparation? Yeah, I think that's actually really, I think it's a good mental exercise for people. Like what if you didn't live in this environment of super abundance? What if in fact food was really hard to obtain as it's been for many people (laughs) throughout human history? Um, And, you know, it's also, I think, a useful reminder that our superabundance is not guaranteed going forward. You know, I'm I'm not of a totally apocalyptic mindset myself, but I also think, you know, our current food system is not sustainable in its current form. You know, there there are, there are some things like some inputs, for example, petroleum, that we just don't have an infinite amount of, and at some point things are either going to have to change radically or things will collapse. Um, and so I think these you know, a lot of the post-apocalyptic movies or TV shows or also video games like Fallout 4, um, which I just had a student write a paper about because of its relevance to food. Um, I think those are good reminders to people potentially that, um, you know, food, food like, like a lot of things, our food system is, is, is somewhat fragile. And if you took away certain pillars, uh, it could, it could fall apart. So, I, I think that can be a sort of, um, you know, exaggerated, uh, exaggerated model of what I want students to think about anyway, which is the non-inevitability of the way we eat today. Do your colleagues just like scoff at you? Pfft, my classes would get great reviews if I could have signed <laughs> papers on food and fallout four. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. Who who can't get a great review with a class like that? Exactly. Yeah, I do. I do. I think maybe they're 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 a little. Yeah, I do think there's probably some scoffing. Although they're nice enough to me not to do it right in front of me. <laughs> you write in the conclusion of your book that although the specific contexts have changed, the current debates over everything from industrial food, sustainability, and poverty to obesity and self control have been animated by the same fundamental conviction articulated with passionate certainty by Americans a century, century earlier, that food is a moral issue. Do you think as we move into, at least in certain regions of our country, a more secular society where people are less connected to religious traditions, does, does food and eating become like an, a sort of secularized religiosity for a lot of people? That's a great question. I think in some ways, maybe so. I mean, food, because of because it's so big, it's it's it connects us to a lot of moral issues potentially, and it also connects us to our family and our friends in this very basic um, sort of community building way. That you know, I, I've wondered the same thing if a lot of the um, energy that's now lavished on food in a variety of ways, whether it's cooking or photographing food or thinking about the morals of food, you know, if some of that energy, you know, previously was, you know, would have been reserved for for a more explicitly religious or spiritual 
realm, which is not at all to say that those are contradictory or mutually exclusive. I think the opposite in some ways. Um, but I, I do think that, um, people, a lot of people, I think have the idea that they can, they can act morally through food and that maybe, you know, by acting morally through food, that's, that's a, you know, that in some ways can be a primary, a primary pursuit of their lives is, is trying to eat well. And that's, that's sort of their moral, um, that is the, the vehicle in some ways for their moral actions. Um, and, you know, whether that in some ways has taken the place for some people of religion, I think, you know, that would be too strong of a statement, but I think some of that energy, you know, potentially is coming from realms that would have gone into religion um, previously. And I wonder if, like, it doesn't get caught up with some of the best and worst of religion, right? If the best is so, sort of a transcendence and connecting with a reality bigger than yourself that mm-hmm. hopefully makes you grateful. But also the judgmentalism. Like, I, you know, like, <laughs> like the, the kind of puritanical gaze when someone walks into McDonald's from some people. Like, how could you do that? You know, I mean, maybe it will just make um, a new crop of secular judgmental mm-hmm. people. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for t- taking some time uh, to talk with me and for uh, contributing to our magazine. Uh, totally my pleasure. This was really a great conversation. Maybe we could sleep. Make you banana pancakes. Pretend like it's the weekend now. We could pretend it all the time. Can't you see that it's just raining? There ain't no need to go outside. But just maybe like a ukulele. Mama may. The one, the only, David Peterson, who in this issue of The Mockingbird, is this your debut article for The Mockingbird? Yes, yes, sir, it is. Great title, Champion of the Vernacular. Food criticism in a nation of experts. So what got you into food criticism? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's so fun to read. It's so fun to read the kind of like to live vicariously through these um, decadent descriptions of luxury restaurants and, you know, super good food and kind of to have your mouth water while you're reading it. That's, that, that, yeah, you, you've convinced me. I mean, that was an incredibly eloquent response to the question. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. So you are in your first year of the, you're a, you're a, a Christchurch fellow, right? Yep. Is that CCF for short? CCF? Um, I don't know, but I like that. C squared F. Mm-hmm. That, could be your, that could be your rap name, C squared F. What, why? Okay, so when you graduated college, you could have done a lot of different things, maybe even been a food critic. Uh, why why did you stay around in your college town and decide to work for mockingbird in christchurch like what was the motivating factor for that decision yeah man well it was totally the community here um i'd been exposed to the mockingbird hq which is the magruder house um across from christ episcopal um since a couple summers ago and um just with dz and ethan and paul um just feeling totally at home here. Um, so kind of any excuse to stay was 
welcome <laughs> and going to be pursued. So, um, yeah, it kind of felt like a no-brainer, but we'll see. The, the years to come, um, still a lot of question marks, of course. Where do you see yourself in five years, David? <laughs> um, five years, I don't know. It's Prob- a job interview question. Yeah, probably back in school somewhere. Um, but I don't really know um, for what or where. But whatever happens with our current politics in five years, you cannot be on your parents' health care. So, yeah, eek. Good point. Why, why do you say that when it comes to food, we love expert opinions? Why? Why do people care what other people think about their food, what they ingest? Well, I don't think it's just food. I think with anything, we love expert opinions. Um, with the movies we watch and books we read and the gym we go to or, um, you know, the whatever workout plan you have. or What gym, we, do, you go to, what gym do you go to? Um, uh, pass. <laughs> and I kind of need to that figure that out. Um, that, I, oh, 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 Pat, you pass on the, You don't get to pass. <laughs> and, and not applicable. Um, I was like, is that like the, the Virginia version of Planet Fitness? Pass? Like, yeah. Pass? Pass would be kind of a good gym name, I think. I don't, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I think expert opinions, um, we want to be told like what we want. We want to be told what's a good look for us. Um, fashion i know is a, a hot topic on the mocking cast um so Absolutely. yeah <laughs> with food i think it's no different um like i know if i'm sitting out like where do i want to go to dinner tonight if i'm if i'm gonna go out to eat it's kind of like uh i don't know there's some like almost existential uh desire to like you know, find the the actualizing dinner spot or the the right place to that's gonna kind of like hit on all my buttons for that night or something. So I don't know, or know what the best gelato flavor is, or know what um you know the best, the best granola. Fa- what is the best gelato flavor? <laughs> well, it's definitely Talenti. Um, I don't even know what that is. Oh yeah, you gotta. It's dangerous, but yeah, you gotta you gotta look up Talenti. Um, their sea salt caramel is really good. Um, but yeah, anyway, we know, there's what are you going to have for dinner tonight? Um, <laughs> good question. I'm actually, I have a shift at my bakery. Um, Marie bet where I work plugging that really quick. Um, and I get off at seven 30, but I get to take home all the excess, um, pastry items that aren't sold. So I'm probably going to make a dinner out of like an extra baguette and some cold cuts or something. So you're carb loading tonight. Yeah, I'm kind of consistently carb loading these days. Carbs, carbohydrates are our friend. Yeah, definitely. David Peterson, thank you for all your work on the Mockingcast, on, for Mockingbird, for Christchurch, and thank you for this stellar article. People that are subscribers should run, not walk to this well, proverbially but with their fingers to, <laughs> the, to the back midsection of this issue to read this article because it's stellar. And thank you for writing it. Thanks a lot, Scott. Thanks for having me on.
It is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector all over again. The Pharisee lobbed judgment and accomplishment up to God. Look at my new napkins, I imagine him saying. I've got a wonderful recipe for something intimidating in French. All the while, the tax collector is standing there, locked out of his house in gym clothes, holding a baby. Please help me, Lord. I need a friend and a beer. My very virtues are being burned away. Thank God. I am being asked to give up on all of these ridiculous images I have of myself and to face my self-affirming sin so I can know God's gracious forgiveness. Out of his sin and embarrassment, Scripture tells us the tax collector offers the sincerest of prayers. God have mercy on me, a sinner. He was the least, the last, and the lonely. He had no virtues of which he could boast. He knew he was always and forever on the receiving end of God's amazing grace. I am grateful to be in such good company. This is from the Hospitality Sting in the Food and Drink Issue of Mockingbird Magazine, written by yours truly, Sarah Condon. So I'm here with Joe Falk. Joe is a friend and the best bartender in greater Philadelphia. Maybe, I mean, I'd say you're at national level of competence, but I'm just speaking from my experience in the region. Worldly. Worldly, yeah. You're world-level elite. Joe, you're actually at Mad Mex right now, right? Absolutely, yeah. I'm at Mad Mex drinking a beer as we speak. What are you drinking there? Uh, it's a beer by Brooklyn. It's called the Bel Air Sour. Never had it before, but I'm a little hungover, so I needed something light. So okay, I- so so you're 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 being adventuresome. You're exploring a little bit. Yeah, and also knowing that I can't drink that much, nothing too heavy right now because I'm feeling it from last night. Well, what did you do last night? What did you engage in? Uh, in uh, Mischief, or what was going on? It was Central City debauchery, really. We were okay. down at uh, Northern Liberties, and then we bounced all around, ended up in Fishtown, made it alive. I love Well, that's one for the win column, if you make it back alive, certainly. Uh, so, Joe, here's my, here's my question. Do you think, being somebody that works in the food and beverage service industry, uh, why do you think, do you, is there kind of a like increasing, do you notice it more like a kind of judgy culture about what you eat and drink? Um, judgy. Yeah, I would say, I would say so all the time. People are coming in, they're taking pictures. They're, they're able to leave reviews about what you're making, about what, what the food comes out. So yeah, with that power, people are allowed to be more judgmental and they're allowed to get their opinion across a lot easier when they are judgmental about things. But it's also, it's not totally negative. It, it, do you think it, it like adds like pressure to something that's supposed to be relaxing? Like you, you used to go to the bar, like, you know, to you know, grab, grab something that would make you feel better, fill your stomach. And now you're kind of like, well, oh gosh, 
I mean, I'd like to order a Miller Lite, but then everybody would be like, oh, that's not hoppy enough. <laughs> um, as a as a as a patron, I don't feel too much pressure going out somewhere, but maybe it's because I work in the industry. But as a bartender, you're the judger, not the judgee. Right. I feel like the pressure is good because you don't want to get so relaxed to where you're not putting out the product. You know, you want the pressure. You want every drink to be uh, one that a person really enjoys, and, and you want the food to come out perfect every time. You know, it's good. It's a judgmental culture because it allows you to to really be better and be the best. But isn't that always a losing proposition? Because we're you're always anytime. I feel like comparisons and standards like that often just suck because we sort of. I mean, eventually you don't measure up, right? And then you kind of feel like I don't know. Maybe you lower the bar more or something. At some yeah, people. Not everyone's gonna like what you're doing. Not everyone's gonna love what they get, but a lot of people will. You know. Joe, what's the cocktail or or beer? Or both that people are missing right now. What 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 do you think is is really the beverage out there that should be consumed and people need to know about? Oh, Scott. Um, well, a Sazer. I mean, you drink a Sazerac, right, Scott? You've had a Sazerac before. I, I think Lindy has had it. I don't know that I have had it. See, that's something that normally gets overlooked because it has absinthe in it. And if you're an old-fashioned drinker, if you're a Manhattan drinker, you might you might not know what a Sazerac is or you might skip over it because it's got a little bit of absinthe in it. People are afraid of absinthe, I think. Um, but it really, really accentuates that, the rye um, and the bitters. And, and so it's pretty much... It's pretty similar to an old fashioned, you know, except for the fact that it's up and uh, it's got a little absinthe, a little lemon in there. But if you're a whiskey drinker and you've never had a Sazerac before, go get yourself a Sazerac. Get a Sazerac. All right. You know, that's a as- really strong tiki drink. Yeah, I think more bars need strong tiki rum drinks, you know, like like a zombie or like a, a hurricane. You know, that's those are the best that. They feel so cheesy when you're not on vacation, but they taste so good and they work the best too. Yeah, it's sort of like it's. I mean, it, it's it's more fashionable now, right? To order just a margarita. I feel like at a bar, like you work at the Church Villain, which is not a Mexican restaurant; it's a standard kind of American, nice pub. But but people come in and drink a margarita. But you used to really not do that. I mean, people, you you did that at like a Mexican restaurant, but now it's become more popular to just consume the margarita. In any, you know, in any venue and fair. That's what we need for the tiki drinks. You don't have to have a bathing suit on to drink the tiki drink. You can have one on, though, under your clothes if you want. Exactly. Exactly. That's all underwear is. It's just like a bathing suit, but different. And, Joe, what's the, what's like the thing that if, as somebody on the other end of the bar, what what's the thing that a a patron of a bar should know? What's the thing? How do you... How are you the best customer you can be? What's the thing you think people need to know to be good customers? You no, know, we're just we're human beings too with like a job to do, you know. So kind of give us the benefit of the doubt if um, if it's a little busy or just don't. You know the big the biggest thing that can go the longest way that people don't do is just say like hi. <laughs> it's so it's so funny how sometimes I'll go up to somebody and I'll say hey how's it going like. What do you, or, hey, how's it going? And then I'll 
say like, oh, Coors Light, and I'm just like, all right, well, I guess I'm a, I guess I'm a robot to you now, you know? So I like a little, honestly, just a little interaction can go a long way, you know? Don't treat me like I'm just here to get you a beer, which, I mean, it sounds a little complainy because that is all I'm here to get you, but... You know, sort of recognize the fact that I'm a, I'm a human being just like you, not not a serving robot. Martin Buber, the Jewish philosopher, says that what we really long for in relationships is an like, interaction is I thou, or both subjects versus like an I it. Like, don't treat me like a parking meter or an ATM. Treat me like a thou, like a subject. Right, right, right. Um, that's a, yeah, that's a good piece of advice for some people. You don't have to be. You don't have to be a kiss my ass or a, a go above and beyond, you know, just a little, hey, how you doing? Old. Not everyone goes above and beyond conversationally like me. Right. You're an exceptional conversationalist across the bar. And Joe, I, 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 our listeners should know that I often just walk into the Churchville Inn, which if you're in greater Philadelphia, you definitely want to stop in and see Joe Falk and the team there. I often just come in and just let you order for me. I really don't even... Anymore, I don't even look at the drink menu. I just say, bring me something, you know. I, well, I've developed over time. I know what you like now. That's why you can come in and I already know. I, I'll just give it right to you. It's so stress-free. Remember when you came in the other day and you said, give me, uh, give me a whiskey and give me something that pairs with it? And I did. Anyway. Yeah, and the beer, you, you made a beer-whiskey pairing that was stupendous, just phenomenal. And, and just, uh, we're playing, for the listeners who, who enjoy, uh, who like to follow what I'm doing, Joe and I actually planning to start your own podcast. It's going to be called Scotch and Soda. And I don't know. We're going to talk about all manner of things. See what we can't talk about. Exactly. Exactly. And we'll have Joe make, make some cocktail recommendations for us during the podcast that you can try at home in your own mixology spot. Joe, thanks so much for being a guest here on the Mocking, the Mocking Cast special edition episode to celebrate the food and drink issue beautiful magazine and i'm gonna get i'm gonna bring a copy to the church for you next time i'm i'm in thanks buddy all right man hey enjoy your uh, the rest of your evening buddy all right i'll talk to you soon scott thanks see ya Thanks for listening to this special episode of The Mockingcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to iTunes and give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. Even better, if you really like what you heard, share it with a friend that you think would love to listen. Go over to Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, give them the link. That would be an incredible gift to us. The Mockingcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by David Peterson, and it is edited and technically beautified by Dustin Coons. Thanks again for listening.